Section 12 of The Captain of the Pole Star and Other Tales by Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Man from Archangel, Part 3. It was not long, however, before I saw him again. I had been out for a row one morning, for my head was aching, partly from prolonged stooping and partly from the effects of a noxious drug which I had inhaled the night before. I pulled along the coast some miles, and then, feeling thirsty, I landed at a place where I knew that a fresh water stream trickled down into the sea. This rivulet passed through my land, but the mouth of it, where I found myself that day, was beyond my boundary line. I felt somewhat taken aback when, rising from the stream at which I had slacked my thirst, I found myself face to face with the Russian. I was as much a trespasser now as he was, and I could see at a glance that he knew it. "'I wish to speak a few words to you,' he said gravely. "'Hurry up, then,' I answered, glancing at my watch. "'I have no time to listen to chatter.' "'Chatter,' he repeated angrily. "'Ah, but there. You Scotch people are strange men. Your face is hard and your words rough. But so are those of the good fishermen with whom I stay. Yet I find that beneath it all there lie kind, honest natures. No doubt you are kind and good, too, in spite of your roughness. In the name of the devil, I said, say your say and go your way. I am weary of the sight of you. Can I not soften you in any way, he cried. Ah, see, see here. He produced a small Grecian cross from inside his velvet jacket. Look at this. Our religions may differ in form, but at least we have some common thoughts and feelings when we see this emblem. I'm not so sure of that, I answered. He looked at me thoughtfully. You are a very strange man, he said at last. I cannot understand you. You still stand between me and Sophie. It is a dangerous position to take, sir, oh, believe me, before it is too late. If you did but know what I have done to gain that woman, how I have risked my body, how I have lost my soul. You are a small obstacle to some which I have surmounted. You, whom a rip with a knife or a blow from a stone would put out of my way forever. But God preserve me from that, he cried wildly. I am deep, too deep already. Anything rather than that. You would do better to go back to your country, I said, than to skulk about these sand hills and disturb my leisure. When I have proof that you have gone away, I shall hand this woman over to the protection of the Russian consul at Edinburgh. Until then, I shall guard her myself, and not you, nor any Muscovite that ever breathed, shall take her from me. And what is your object in keeping me from Sophie? he asked. Do you imagine that I would injure her? Why, man, I would give my life freely to save her from the slightest harm. Why do you do this thing? I do it because it is my good pleasure to act so, I answered. I give no man reason for my conduct. Look here, he cried, suddenly blazing in the fury and advancing towards me with his shaggy mane bristling and his brown hands clenched. If I thought you had one dishonest thought towards this girl, if for a moment I had reason to believe that you had any base motive for detaining her, as sure as there is a God in heaven, I should drag the heart out of your bosom with my hands. The very idea seemed to have put the man in a frenzy, 
for his face was all distorted and his hands opened and shut convulsively. I thought that he was about to spring at my throat. Stand off, I said, putting my hand on my pistol. If you lay a finger on me, I shall kill you. He put his hand into his pocket, and for a moment I thought he was about to produce a weapon too. But instead of that, he whipped out a cigarette and lit it, breathing the smoke rapidly into his lungs. No doubt he had found by experience that this was the most effectual way of curbing his passions. I told you, he said in a quieter voice, that my name is Organoff. Alexis Organoff. I am a Finn by birth, but I have spent my life in every part of the world. I was one who could never be still, nor settle down to a quiet existence. After I came to own my own ship, there is hardly a port from Archangel to Australia which I have not entered. I was rough and wild and free. But there was one at home, sir, who was prim and white-handed and soft-tongued, skillful in the fancies and conceits which women love. This youth, by his wiles and tricks, stole from me the love of the girl whom I had ever marked as my own, and who up to that time had seemed in some sort inclined to return my passion. I had been on a voyage to Hammerfest for ivory, and coming back unexpectedly, I learned that my pride and treasure was to be married to this soft-skinned boy, and that the party had actually gone to the church. In such moments, sir, something gives way in my head, and I hardly know what I do. I landed with a boat's crew, all men who had sailed with me for years, and who were as true as steel. We went up to the church. They were standing, she and he, before the priest, but the thing had not been done. I dashed between them and caught her round the waist. My men beat back the frightened bridegroom and the lookers-on. We bore her down to the boat and aboard our vessel. And then, getting up anchor, we sailed away across the white sea until the spires of Archangel sank down behind the horizon. She had my cabin, my room, every comfort. I slept among the men in the forecastle. I hoped that in time her aversion to me would wear away, and that she would consent to marry me in England or in France. For days and days we sailed. We saw the North Cape die away behind us, and we skirted the gray Norwegian coast. But still, in spite of every attention, she would not forgive me for tearing her from that pale-faced lover of hers. Then came this cursed storm, which shattered both my ship and my hopes, and has deprived me, even, of the sight of the woman for whom I have risked so much. Perhaps she may learn to love me yet. You, sir, he said wistfully, look like one who has seen much of the world. Do you not think that she may come to forget this man and to love me? I am tired of your story, I said, turning away, for my part. I think you are a great fool. If you imagine that this love of yours will pass away, you had best amuse yourself as best you can until it does. If, on the other hand, it is a fixed thing, you cannot do better than cut your throat, for that is the shortest way out of it. I have no more time to waste on the matter. With this, I hurried away and walked down to the boat. I never looked round, but I heard the dull sound of his feet upon the sands as he followed me. I have told you the beginning of my story, he said, 
and you shall know the end some day. You would do well to let the girl go. I never answered him, but pushed the boat off. When I had rowed some distance out, I looked back and saw his tall figure upon the yellow sand as he stood gazing thoughtfully after me. When I looked again some minutes later, he had disappeared. For a long time after this, my life was as regular and as monotonous as it had been before the shipwreck. At times I hoped that the man from Archangel had gone away altogether, but certain footsteps which I saw upon the sand, and more particularly a little pile of cigarette hash, which I found one day behind a hillock from which a view of the house might be obtained, warned me, though invisible, he was still in the vicinity. My relations with the Russian girl remained the same as before. Old Madge had been somewhat jealous of her presence at first, and seemed to fear that what little authority she had would be taken away from her. By degrees, however, as she came to realize my utter indifference, she became reconciled to the situation, and, as I have said before, profited by it as our visitor performed much of the domestic work. And now I am coming near to the end of this narrative of mine, which I have written a great deal more for my own amusement than for that of anyone else. The termination of the strange episode in which these two Russians had played a part was as wild and as sudden as the commencement. The events of one single night freed me from all my troubles and left me once more alone with my books and my studies, as I had been before their intrusion. Let me endeavor to describe how this came about. I had had a long day of heavy and wearying work, so in the evening I determined upon taking a long walk. When I emerged from my house, my attention was attracted by the appearance of the sea. It lay like a sheet of glass, so that never a ripple disturbed its surface. Yet the air was filled with that indescribable moaning sound which I have alluded to before, a sound as though the spirits of all those who lay beneath those treacherous waters were sending a sad warning of coming troubles to their brethren in the flesh. The fishermen's wives along that coast knew the eerie sound and looked anxiously across the waters for the brown sails making for the land. When I heard it, I stepped back into the house and looked at the glass. It was down below twenty-nine degrees. Then I knew that a wild night was coming upon us. Underneath the hills where I walked that evening, it was dull and chill, but their summits were rosy red, and the sea was brightened by the sinking sun. There were no clouds of importance in the sky, yet the dull groaning of the sea grew louder and stronger. I saw, far to the eastward, a brig beating up for wick, with a reef in her topsails. It was evident that her captain had read the signs of nature as I had done. Behind her a long, lurid haze lay low upon the water, concealing the horizon. I had better push on, I thought to myself, or the wind may rise before I can get back. I suppose I must have been at least a half a mile from the house when I suddenly stopped and listened breathlessly. My ears were so accustomed to the noises of nature, the sighing of the breeze and the sob of the waves, that any other sound made itself heard at a great distance. I waited, listening with all my ears. 
Yes, there it was again, a long-drawn, shrill cry of despair, ringing over the sands and echoed back from the hills behind me, a piteous appeal for aid. It came from the direction of my house. I turned and ran back homewards at the top of my speed, plowing through the sand, racing over the shingle. In my mind there was a great dim perception of what had occurred. About a quarter of a mile from the house there is a high sand hill, from which the whole country round is visible. When I reached the top of this I paused for a moment. There was the old grey building, there the boat, everything seemed to be as I had left it. Even as I gazed, however, the shrill scream was repeated louder than before, and the next moment a tall figure emerged from my door, the figure of the Russian sailor. Over his shoulder was the white form of the young girl, and even in his haste he seemed to bear her tenderly and with gentle reverence. I could hear her wild cries and see her desperate struggles to break away from him. Behind the couple came my old housekeeper, staunch and true as the aged dog, who can no longer bite, still snarls with toothless gums at the intruder. She staggered feebly along at the heels of the ravisher, waving her long, thin arms and hurling, no doubt, volleys of scotch curses and imprecations at his head. I saw at a glance that he was making for the boat. A sudden hope sprang up in my soul that I might be in time to intercept him. I ran for the beach at the top of my speed. As I ran, I slipped a cartridge into my revolver. This, I determined, should be the last of these invasions. I was too late. By the time I reached the water's edge, he was a hundred yards away, making the boat spring with every stroke of his powerful arms. I uttered a wild cry of impotent anger and stamped up and down the sands like a maniac. He turned and saw me. Rising from his seat, he made me a graceful bow and waved his hand to me. It was not a triumphant or a derisive gesture. Even my furious and distempered mind recognized it as being a solemn and courteous leave-taking. Then he settled down to his oars once more, and the little skiff shot away out over the bay. The sun had gone down now, leaving a single dull red streak upon the water, which stretched away until it blended with a purple haze on the horizon. Gradually the skiff grew smaller and smaller as it sped across this lurid band, until the shades of night gathered round it and it became a mere blur upon the lonely sea. Then this vague loom died away also, and darkness settled over it, a darkness which should never more be raised. And why did I pace the solitary shore, hot and wrathful as a wolf whose whelp has been torn from it? Was it that I loved this Muscovite girl? No, a thousand times no. I am not one who, for the sake of a white skin, or a blue eye, would belie my own life, and change the whole tenor of my thoughts and existence. My heart was untouched, but my pride, ah, there I had been cruelly wounded. To think that I had been unable to afford protection to the helpless one who craved it of me, and who relied on me, it was that which made my heart sick and sent the blood buzzing through my ears. 
That night a great wind rose up from the sea, and the wild waves shrieked upon the shore as though they would tear it back with them into the ocean. The turmoil and the uproar were congenial to my vexed spirit. All night I wandered up and down, wet with spray and rain, watching the gleam of the white breakers and listening to the outcry of the storm. My heart was bitter against the Russian. I joined my feeble pipe to the screaming of the gale. If he would but come back again, I cried with clenched hands, if he would but come back. He came back. When the gray light of morning spread over the eastern sky and lit up the great waste of yellow tossing waters, with the brown clouds drifting slowly over them, I saw him once again. A few hundred yards off along the sand there lay a long, dark object, cast up by the fury of the waves. It was my boat, much shattered and splintered. A little further on, a vague, shapeless something was washing to and fro in the shallow water, all mixed with shingle and with seaweed. I saw at a glance that it was the Russian, face downwards and dead. I rushed into the water and dragged him up on to the beach. It was only when I turned him over that I discovered that she was beneath him, his dead arms encircling her, his mangled body still intervening between her and the fury of the storm. It seemed that the fierce German sea might beat the life from him, but with all its strength it was unable to tear this one idea, man from the woman whom he loved. There were signs which led me to believe that during that awful night the woman's fickle mind had come at last to learn the worth of the true heart and strong arm which struggled for her and guarded her so tenderly. Why else should her little head be nesting so lovingly on his broad breast, while her yellow hair entwined itself with his flowing beard? Why, too, should there be that bright smile of ineffable happiness and triumph, which death itself had not had power to banish from his dusky face. I fancy that death had been brighter to him than life had ever been. Madge and I buried them there on the shores of the desolate northern sea. They lie in one grave deep down beneath the yellow sand. Strange things may happen in the world around them. Empires may rise and fall. Dynasties may perish. Great wars may come and go. But heedless of it all, those two shall embrace each other forever and I, in their lonely shrine, by the side of the sounding ocean. I sometimes have thought that their spirits flit like shadowy sea mews over the wild waters of the bay. No cross or symbol marks their resting place, but old Madge puts wild flowers upon it at times, and when I pass on my daily walk and see the fresh blossoms scattered over the sand, I think of the strange couple who came from afar and broke for a little space the dull tenor of my somber life. End of section 12